The scripture on which today's preaching is based is Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 24. It's also found in your bulletins, printed in smaller font today because it's a lengthier passage. Allow me to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 24. By this point, two chapters in to scripture, God has created the world, the heavens and the earth, and he's created man. And here lies a very famous passage. If you've ever been to a church at any point in time, Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 24. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth, to guard the way to the tree of life. And this is God's word. Beginning a new series, calling it The History of Redemption. And what it teaches us is that the Bible is entirely consistent, wholly consistent from Genesis, the first book, all the way to Revelation, the 66th and last book of the Bible. The Bible is not disconnected. It's not a disconnected set of stories with morals on how to live life which is what 99% of the world believes the Bible to be, but it's rather one story, one single cohesive story telling us what's wrong with the human race, how it wreaks havoc in our lives, and how it all ends, how the story, this incredible story ends. In this passage, we start with verse 6, Eve. She's captivated by this fruit. It's pleasing to her. 
It's pleasing to the eye. She sees value in it. It's going to give her wisdom. And despite God's command not to eat of it, she felt more free. She felt more free when she abandoned God's command. It's an incredible, remarkable thing that's going on. She abandons the trust. She abandons the security. She abandons the love of God. There's no more more trust now. She distrusts God. She rejects the security, rejects the love of God. What a sin. When we abandon the trust and the security and the love of God, we distort it for our own purposes. What we're doing is this. We're choosing to become our own master. And Genesis 3 tells us then what's wrong with the world. Why is there evil? Why is there evil? Some people say it's because there's a lack of education. There's a lack of upbringing, good upbringing. But clearly, the most intelligent people of our day, if you look at the 1940s and the Holocaust, the most intelligent people of the day were capable of doing tremendous evil. So rather we look at St. Augustine, who says, what's wrong with the world? It's sin. Original sin. In our lives. In all its implications. So today, heavy topic, three lessons about sin. What it is, what are the consequences, and how does it end? What it is, what are the consequences, and how does it end? First, what it is. What is sin? Sin is so many definitions, and if you try to explain it, if I try to stand here and just explain it to you briefly, it's always going to sound preachy. It's always going to sound mechanical and rote, so we're going to kind of ease into the definition of sin. Sin is putting yourself in God's place. We're really literally overthrowing him. We're rebelling. We're creating a revolution in our hearts. We're overthrowing him as king. And how do you do that? Why do we do that? Sin is trying to feel more superior than we really are. That's why we rebel. That's why we're trying to take God's place. It's because we believe we're more superior. And we've got to unpack this. Verse 12, Adam says, I'm just going to paraphrase. Adam says, I didn't do it. She made me do it. In fact, you gave her to me. She made me do it. So it's not me. Send her to die. Give me a new wife. That's basically what Adam's saying. What is sin? Sin is justifying yourself at the expense of other people. Adam literally throws his wife under the bus. We're exploiting people for, my, for ourselves. We're advancing ourselves at the cost of other people. Ultimately, the Bible says that there's a, a, a disposition, a proneness of the heart to pull other people down to feel better than other people, to feel higher about ourselves. We act superior because we feel inferior. Adam's saying, I'm still good. It's her that's bad. That's our impulse. That's sin. And it's at the root of everything. It's at the root of our murder. It's at the root of our hate. It's at the root of our racism. It's at the root of our sexism. It's at the root of religious intolerance. It's at, it's at, the, root, at the heart of why we look at other neighborhoods and other people and we look down on them because of their lack of education, with our lack of wealth. It's at the root of every type of alienation. That's sin. You can't go into it without sounding preachy, without sounding mechanical about it, but it's the cause of all brokenness. We're going to go into that in a little bit. Second, what are the consequences of sin? What are the consequences? First, both man and woman cursed. Both of them banished from the garden. Both of them are equally sinful. Both of them are equally naked. Both of them are equally ashamed. In other words, we're hardwired for sin. 
It's just a part of our lives. It's, we, we are wired for this. We're all hard, hardwired equally. Not a single person, not a single gender, not a single age. I mean, if you're a parent, you know that your son, your son or your daughter, as little and cute as he may be, is just as sinful, is just as capable and prone for the capacity of sin as you are. There's not a single person who's better in this regard. Conservatives look at liberals. The red states look at the blue states. And we say, that's, they're the unclean ones. They're the problem. They're what's wrong with the world. The blue states look at the red states. The liberals look at the conservatives and say, well, they're the ones that are holding the world back. They're holding progress back. They're the ones that are unclean. They're the ones that should be disregarded. You know, what is the first consequence then? Sin levels everyone, equalizes everybody. It creates a radical evil that actually courses through all of humankind, all of mankind. William Shakespeare, if you look at books like Macbeth and Hamlin, what is the main theme? One of the primary themes of Shakespeare's tragedies is what? That sin infects all. And unless you are separate from sin, completely apart, for instance, in Hamlet, Horatio is outside fighting a noble war. He's completely disengaged from all of what's going on in society. And when he comes back, everyone, including the main character, Hamlet, is dead. William Shakespeare believed that sin courses through everybody. The only way that you would be saved from that is if you were utterly, completely, totally apart, not human. Take a fine-tuned German engineered car, a beautiful car. You open up the hood, you turn on the engine, and you listen. And that car is just humming beautifully. Now you open up the core of that engine and you throw a hunk of metal or a wrench into that engine. What happens? All these things start hitting and you no longer hear the hum. What do you hear? Where there was once integration, beautiful integration, now there's disintegration. Where there was coherence, finely engineered coherence, now there's incoherence. That's us. That's what sin does. It disintegrates us. It makes life incoherent. And we're constantly trying to find meaning and understanding and explanation of the curse, the curse that's literally printed in this passage. And we're going to break down, we're going to unravel or unpack this curse, but it affects everyone. It's the, it's the ultimate equalizer. Sin levels everybody. Now, we're going to go into the second consequence. Look at the depth Look how deeply sin courses through us. Human beings are radically relational. More than any other animal uh, on earth, we are radically relational as, as people, as animals in the world. Why? It's because we were created in the image of God. We were built to reflect God's character, and God's character, Father, Son, Spirit, is community. And so we're built to reflect that community. But take a mirror. You look at it. It's a beautiful image most of us, and you smash that mirror, what happens? You smash that mirror, you still see a reflection, you still see an image, but it's a broken image. That's sin. We are a broken reflection. So that means all of our relationships are broken. And you see that here in this text. Sin is like this tumor that's eating away our any ability to conduct a good relationship. God is walking in the garden. Beautiful image. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That is an idiom throughout the Old Testament. Whenever you see walking together, it is a sense of seeking relationship, good connection. So what is God doing? He's, he's walking in the garden in the cool of the context. That means it's 
perfect. We are in paradise, so it's always cool in the day. It's a perfect time to walk. He's seeking relationship and community with his creation. But what something, it's beautiful, but something has happened. What's happened? Adam and Eve have withdrawn, and they're hiding. Adam and Eve, in the cool of the day, in this paradise, because paradise was not enough for them. That's why they rebelled. And now they're living out this alienation from God. They've, they've covered themselves with fig leaves, and then they hid. And that's the order. They realized they were naked. At one point, there was no shame in being naked. They were always naked. But the thing is, now they realized they were naked. They felt shame, and as a result, they covered themselves with fig leaves, and then they hid. Sin results in alienation. Because our relationship with God has been destroyed, as a result, our relationship with other people has been destroyed. God asks, he counsels Adam, and he asks a series of questions. There are four questions in order, but really three questions he's really asking both Adam and Eve. You know, and what does he say? He says, where are you, Adam? Where are you? And then Adam says, you know, basically that he hid, and he's asking why Adam's hiding. He says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Is that what you did? Three very poignant, relevant questions for Adam. The last question he says to Eve, he says, what have you done? What is this you have done? But if you think about what God is doing, it's not like he doesn't know. God isn't asking because he's literally trying to seek the answer Oftentimes we do that. When you're asking a question, when you know the answer, what are you doing? He's counseling Adam. He wants Adam to know. He wants Adam to see. And so that's what he's doing. What is sin? What is this counsel? Sin is about power. Sin is about control. Sin is about using your power, using your control to gain a sense of worth in some way, shape, or form. And as a result, what happens? Even though God desires relationship, That relationship was not enough, and so we've taken matters into our own hands, and as a result, it it has brought us in shame. There's deep inside, there's an inherent, incoherent, disintegrating shame that is eating away at us, and it's destroyed our relationship with God. That is the beginning of our brokenness. But the first thing it does, it's not like they hid from God first. That's not the first thing that it did. The moment they ate the fruit, They realized they were naked and they hid from each other. They covered themselves with fig leaves. They hid from each other first. They alienated, man and woman alienated themselves from each other. What are fig leaves? Nakedness is also an idiom, always throughout the Old Testament, representing shame, discomfort about yourself. We go through stages in life where we're very uncomfortable with our stage or our place in the world or in life. That's what nakedness is. It means we're exposed and, and we feel shame about where we are in life. And the fig leaves are, in this play, case, another metaphor, an idiom. What is it? It's an insufficient means to cover over that nakedness. It wasn't from God first. They hid from God. But it, they alienated themselves from each other. How many times have you felt uncomfortable walking into a community because of your, your sense of shame about who you are or your place in the world? That's what it is. In other words, it's, it's very difficult, you know, um, to, it's very difficult to open yourself up. It's very unnatural to do that. We are naturally closed animals. 
Because what you're saying is, you know, for me to trust you, I have to risk being exploited. I have to risk t- being taken for granted. I have to, you, may, you have to see me for who I really am, and I don't want that. We naturally don't want that. We don't want that. We don't want that. It's bad enough. We know inherently that God sees, that God knows, and that is very, very almost impossible to bear. To say that I'm now conscious of my shame, but I can't open that up to you. Jean-Paul Sartre, famous philosopher, wrote one of his seminal pieces of work called On Being and Nothingness. And in, this, uh, in the beginning parts of this uh, dissertation, it's really about self-awareness, self-consciousness. Jean-Paul Sartre tells a story of how he looks through a keyhole at a woman who has undressed herself, naked. And, and he feels a sense of power and control as he looks into this keyhole because in the, through the keyhole, he's able to see the woman, all of her perfection and imperfections. And as a result, and she doesn't know, and as a result, he feels a sense of power and control over her until he hears a creaking behind him. And he says, lo and behold, he turns around and he sees behind him, first of all, that he is naked and that there's a keyhole behind him. That's how he knows that he exists. And he exists and knows that he exists because he senses shame. That's Jean-Paul Sartre. And that's exactly what's going on in this text. In eating the food, they recognized who they are, that they are naked. And the first thing they did, their first instinct in shame is to cover over themselves. And we have many ways of covering over ourselves. The fig leaves, the Bible says that all of us pursuits is to cover over our sense of inadequacy. We're constantly looking all of our lives, in our entire existential pursuit in life is to cover over our sense of shame and inadequacy and insecurity. That's why we get into relationships the way that we do. That's why we act the way we act. That's why our personalities have been shaped around this. What we desire, how we pursue these things, our careers, our salaries, our need for perfect children, our disappointment in our parents and blaming them, it's all as a result of sin. The first thing that Adam did when he was called out was what? He blamed Eve. All of the physical, relational brokenness comes from our inability to trust in the love of God, the security of God, the sureness of that love and and security. That's what the fig leaves are. It's because we've been separated from God. That's the curse, separation from God. And here we cover over ourselves. Why? To justify ourselves. Because if I can cover myself well, then I can look down, pull other people down who have not covered Their flaws are exposed. I can expose their flaws to make myself feel better. I can justify myself. That's the root of self-righteousness. That's why it's the root of religious intolerance. That's why it's the root of uh, gender intolerance sometimes, our sexism, our racism, putting down other people because of their lack of education or their lack of wealth. It's all part of it. We can talk about it with respect to sports, the way we praise ourselves and our our capabilities versus other people. That is all at the root, at the heart, to cover over our sense of shame and inadequacy. That's the second or third implication. If the first implication is um, our our, uh, desire, knowing that sin has leveled everybody, 
Then the second one is that it has resulted in alienation from ourselves, from each other, from God. And the third thing then is that we use fig leaves to cover over our inadequacy, our sense of shame. Now what's the fourth one? We're going to walk through this very quickly. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Before, uh, before sin ever entered the world, family existed, work existed, rest existed. But in verse 16, what is he saying? Now your family lives will be utterly broken. From the moment of childbearing, you will feel pain for the rest of your life. You will be at war with your children. You will battle your children. You will battle one another. You will constantly be fighting and battling and positioning yourself with power for control. Why? Because now you will use them to fulfill yourself. That's what sin does. That's an implication. Look at what he says in verses 17 to 19. This is his curse to Adam. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. From now on the ground will be cursed. That's the beginning of all diseases. That's the beginning of all natural disasters. From now on, the ground will be cursed, which means that we will be working for the rest of our lives to find fulfillment, not just in relationships, but in our work. Our self-work will be rooted in our careers. Our self-worth will be rooted in our salaries. That's why we're constantly comparing. That's why we, we get bitter when we're not promoted. That's why we get upset when somebody who's less deserving moves ahead of us. That's why we all are constantly looking at our salaries with respect to other people's salaries, with respect to salaries in other careers and other positions and other, um, in, in other um, educational backgrounds. We're constantly doing that. Our hearts are constantly creating. It's a factory of looking for self-worth through our work, through our relationships. It's the source of why we become slaves to our work. Because we need to work, and yet the curse says you will not be fruitful in the end. By the sweat of your brow, you will work until you return to the ground. You will die trying to find fulfillment in your work and in your relationships. God says you're going to work, but there are going to be thorns. There are going to be thistles. You're going to find fruitlessness. This is why even our rest is broken. Work, family, rest, all existed before sin ever came into our lives, but now it's all broken. He says, because from dust you are, to dust you will return. You will not even rest in peace. And and to cap that off, verse 23 to 24, God places a sword, a flaming sword that flashes back and forth with a cherubim, an angel. And it's placed in front of the east side of the garden because the east side always represented distance from God. And here, the sword is flashing back and forth. Why? Because it's God's way of saying, you will work to find fulfillment in all these things because now you've been separated from me. You once had security. You once had love. And now you're going to be looking for that approval. You're going to be looking for that security. You're going to be looking for that love. And you're going to work yourself to the ground, but you will never find it. Because anytime you try to find it, if you want to enter back into the garden again on your own without a relationship with God, you will get the sword. You will die. You will feel the curse down to the end. And he drives them out. He says, you cannot reunite with God. You cannot reunite with paradise unless you go by the way of the sword. That's the curse. 
That's why we're constantly padding our resumes. You want to see how people lie? Read their resumes. We're constantly padding our resumes. This is the source of our materialism. This is the source of our, approvis, our, our approval seeking. This is the reason why we need to have perfect children because it's not enough. It's, it's a struggle enough to grow wise and to grow righteous on our own. But we need to see it in our children because it's a reflection of us, a broken reflection of us. We're constantly finding ways to justify who we are before God. We have fig leaves. Fig leaves are insufficient. It's not going to protect you. How does this end? How does the story end? Look at the mercy of God. God promises that if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. You will die. But he doesn't destroy them. He counsels them. He's counseling Adam. He's asking Adam questions. He knows the answer. Why is he asking them? He's giving truth. He wants to wake Adam up. He wants to illumine Adam's life. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm intervening. I'm asking you these questions, not because I need to know. I already know. I want you to know. I want you to own it. I want you to take responsibility. I want you to say, this is who I am. He's still seeking them. He's walking in the garden. He's walking. He's seeking connection. He doesn't destroy them. Notice, he doesn't ask the serpent any questions. He's just asking those he loves. He wants to change the people he loves. Second, he makes garments for them. Garments made of animal skin. They had fig leaves. They're living in a hostile environment now. Sin has now wreaked havoc in the world. There's brokenness in our environment. And they're trying to cover themselves insufficiently with fig leaves. So what does he do? He gives them a new covering. He gives them these, these animal skins. And we know that, you know, if you look at his grace, we, we said, look at his mercy, but look at his grace. They just wronged him in the most incredible way, completely overthrew him. And yet, what does he do? He's so loving. He's so giving. He's so sacrificial. And yet, this is also a foreshadowing. Because the garments imply that some blood had to have been spilt. These coats of skin that they're wearing now, it, it, it says a man's sin makes it necessary for God to take action on his behalf. And we see this in verses 14 to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Verse 14 and 15 is a promise. It's the one time that he actually speaks to the serpent. And he speaks it in the form of a promise because we, we, we see God taking action here in the form of a promise. This passage, those two verses, are known as the prototype of the gospel. We call it the euangelion, an enigmatic foreshadowing of a proto-gospel. What's he saying? He's saying this. Into this family, into this couple, comes a snake. One man goes after the snake and starts to trample, stamp on the snake. Now, he crushes the snake's head. He kills the snake. He saves his family, but in the process, the snake bites him. 
and with his full force injects all of his poison into this man. So he saves his family, but he's going to die. One day, a human being will come, and he's not just going to teach us, give us moral lessons to cope with the poison that's in our bodies, in our souls. He's going to come in, and he's going to trample on sin itself. But death will get the best of him. Death will bite him. And in so doing, inject in him all that is coursing through us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One day, he will become in, injected with the curse of sin. And in so doing, will turn death on his own head. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis writes, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia. And towards the end of this book, there's an explanation in, some, in a beautifully written way. Aslan, the lion, the, the, the hero character in this book says, explains that though the witch knew the deep magic, the witch has a way of turning everything into winter. There is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. One day a human being will come and trample on death altogether, crush it. But in so doing, you know, in his doing, death would start working backwards but he would pay the price with his own life. He would get rid of the snake, but at the cost of his own life. God tells Adam, obey me with respect to this tree. But Adam failed. And even though he failed, he received the curse, but he lived. Why? It's because of the promise. Verses 14 and 15. Centuries later, God told another man, to obey him with respect to the tree. Jesus and his cross. This time, Jesus, the second Adam, the greater Adam, obeyed all the way through. He was without sin, all the way to the cross. Not one complaint, not one uttering of dissatisfaction, not one grumble before God. In the peak of his torture and death, in all of his life there was suffering, but not one utterance, not one commission of sin. He fully obeyed with respect to the tree. And even though he was obeyed, he was cursed. The poison of sin was injected. He became sin, and he did die. Adam, he disobeyed, yet he lives. Jesus fully obeyed, yet he died. Why? What do you see when you look at the cross? Thorns. Jesus received the thorns. Jesus received the thistles. Jesus received the cross. He wore a crown of thorns. The tree was always a symbol of the curse. You read that in Deuteronomy all the way through. Anytime you see the word tree, it stood as judgment before God. And yet Jesus, in order to bring his people into God's perfect home, 
the place of rest, in, into a greater garden in, in respects. Someone had to go through the sword. Someone had to go under the sword. Someone had to experience the curse. Jesus braved the sword. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does he mean when he's saying that? Is he just saying right now, is he complaining on the cross? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? What he's saying is this, I've been, com- I've been obedient all the way. In fact, he says, it is finished. I've completely obeyed. And now at this moment, I've become alienated. I'm suffering the alienation. Jesus was stripped naked. Now I am living in ultimate shame. Forsaken, God himself had turned his face from me. You can't even bear to look at me because I'm in shame, because I am suffering, because I've become sin. Jesus is undergoing the disintegration on the cross. Jesus is going, undergoing the alienation on the cross. Jesus is suffering the incoherence of sin on the cross. And he's saying, I'm going through the sword. Why? For you. I'm going through the sword for you. I've been cut off completely from the land of the living. I've been driven out of God's eternal grace and love and certainty. Why? So that we could have the certainty. So that we can have his grace. So that we can have his love. So we can stop looking at all these other things to fulfill us. Because they won't. Cursed is the ground. We will always experience dissatisfaction. We will always experience brokenness, further brokenness because of that. But here, if we look in at the cross and what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done for us, Romans chapter 4, blessed are they whose sins are covered. We have a covering that goes beyond anything that God has, that, that anything that we could create or use to cover over our inadequacies. We have a greater covering. When the gospel enters into our lives, the resume, the physical resume, the spiritual resumes that we use to pad our sinfulness can go away. We can forsake those things. Why? Because we become accepted. God sees and yet he loves in full. Just as much as he sees who we all really are, he says you can own it. You can take responsibility for it. Why? Because he forgives even more. And it's not like you sin a little and God forgives just a little bit enough to cover you know, like your pain does the, the balance of the credit card just enough to buy the next purchase. That's not God. Look at, look at Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. It is immeasurable. His grace is immeasurable. It, it overwhelms the extent of our sinfulness like a flood. This week, let's reflect on these words and Live in line with that truth. You know what it means to live in line with that truth? It's to say that I have been seeking fulfillment and worth through my career, through my salary. It doesn't mean that I'm just going to walk away from all these things, although in some cases, maybe that's what's needed. But more than that, it's to now reorient all these things. That's called repentance. I've been seeking worth in these things, and it's not giving me worth. It's failed me, and I'm failing it. That's the curse. 
I would rather seek my worth in the finished work of Christ. Jesus obeyed perfectly so that we can look to him as our righteousness and trust in that and know that all the approval that we're seeking is really a way of seeking approval from God himself. That's what it is. We're trying to cover. We're trying to hide because we know that it's inadequate. We're turning our attention. So, you know, I have access again. I can walk with God again. And that's going to cure the brokenness. That's going to cure all of our desires to use people, use our jobs, use our children, use our relationships to fill our lives because our lives are now filled. They've been made whole. We are complete in Christ. And if you believe that, the deeper that truth now starts to infiltrate into every aspect of our lives, you will find redemption. You will find renewal. Everything you need to know about the gospel is probably found in, 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 in this one chapter, Romans chapter 3. And as a church, we're going to now walk through the entire Bible over time to see all the different nuances of how it actually works, and how sin courses into our lives, and how the redemption that can be found only in Christ can, can so much, like a flood, overwhelm us. Will you plant that truth? into your life this week. Let's respond in worship together uh, before we dismiss today. Let's pray.